You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your own financial front seat by knowing what you own, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Her Money. So about the middle of last year, Kelly went on vacation. I don't want to make everybody too envious, but she did go to Hawaii. And when she came back, the first thing out of her mouth was, we have to have Meg Jay on the show. So Kelly was on the beach drinking a cocktail reading The Defining Decade, Why Your 20s Matter and How to Make the Most of Them Now by Dr. Meg Jay, who is a clinical psychologist, a narrative nonfiction writer. And in her books, she weaves the latest research with what she hears every day, which are the behind-closed-doors stories of real people. Kelly came back all jazzed. She said it revolutionized her take on work, money, love, and what she wants for her future. It has done the same for millions of other people. Many of you may have seen Dr. J's TED Talk, Why 30 is Not the New 20. It has been viewed more than 10 million times, and now she's got a new book called Supernormal, The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. Meg, thank you so much for getting on the phone with me, but also with Kelly. So we have to start with The Defining Decade and your hugely successful TED Talk. I'm 53. Kelly is still in her 20s. Um, Why do so many people think 30 is the new 20? Well, if you look at what has happened historically over the last 50 years or so, for a variety of reasons, adult milestones have shifted closer to 30 than to 20. So 50 years ago, the average age of marriage was 21. Average age of first baby was 22. You know, if you were a male in the workforce, you probably had that job you were going to have for 50 years before you got the gold watch. And, you know, it's just not like that anymore. And, you know, in many ways, that's all for the good. But, you know, most people are going to find their partner close to 30 than to 20. They're going to have a series of jobs throughout their 20s before they may settle into their clear career. So it's kind of led to this saying that we have, which is 30 is the new 20, meaning the adult milestones have shifted. So that I, I can't argue with. But what that's also that kind of saying, 30s, the new 20, has kind of led to this trivialization, I think, at least in popular culture, about the 20-something years. Um, that, you know, leads people to feel like they're not being taken seriously and that they don't really know what to do with that time. So in your mind, how would you have people think about their 20s instead? I think trivialization is a really, really interesting word. Are we just allowing it to be or encouraging it to be a continuation of young adulthood or childhood? 
Actually, a lot of people call it an extended adolescence, and I, I'm not for that term at all. And when I when I say people, I'm not even talking about 20-somethings. I'm talking about academics or, or talking heads, seeing it as an extended adolescence. But most 20-somethings, and Kelly could chime in here if she wanted <laughs> to, will tell you this is not feeling like, you know, the best, most fun years of my life, probably, um, that they're a lot harder than people realize, and that, the you know, when I say 30 is not the new 20, what I mean by that is that you have certain developmental opportunities in your 20s that you're not going to have again. And for us to say 30 is the new 20, it makes people feel like that whatever they do between 20 and 30 doesn't matter when actually it does. Well, when you read Meg's book, Mm -hmm. I mean, what shifted in your mind, Kel? So I absolutely can speak to what Meg is saying in that I've had so many existential moments already in my 20s, and I'm 27. And I learned from your work that 80% of life's most defining moments take place before age 35. So I'm 27 now. I have some time. But for many, that can possibly be an anxiety-inducing statistic. So I'd love for you to elaborate more on what that means and what are these moments that maybe I should be seeking out Right. Yes. Well, I think it is anxiety inducing. I mean, the 20s are in general. We actually know that they're the most uncertain and anxiety provoking years of your life. So if that makes you feel any better, it it does get better from here. And I feel like I should give a the first TED talk was 30s, not the new 20. I feel like I should give another one that is your life isn't over at 30 because everything (laughs) that's in the defining decade you still applies in your 30s and beyond. I just wanted people to get the information as soon as possible. So what we know in your 20s is that there are um, many unique developmental opportunities that even though people partner up later than they used to, 75% of us have met or dating or living with our partner by the age of 30. Um, Even though we have four or five different jobs or, you know, kind of career tries in our 20s, by 30, most people have started to sort of settle in to the area that they're going to claim as their own. Many people don't know this, but your personality changes more in your 20s than at any other time in life. So it's a great time to take stock of who you are and what you want to change about yourself and make those changes now, especially before you find a partner and before you settle in on that career. So there are a lot of um, pivotal moments, if you will, in your 20s. And you can take more than one stab at them between 20 and 30 or between 20 and 35. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we do know that certainly by the age of 35, most of those defining decisions have been made in terms of partner, career, where you're going to work, what kind of financial trajectory you're going to start on. Of course, these things can change over a lifetime, but where you start out is going to have an impact in terms of what you can do later. One of the things that you say in the book is that it's really about taking your life even while you're in your 20s, more seriously. And and I would think this would go for your money, too. I mean, we are always, and by we, I mean people like me, are always saying, start saving early. You're never right. going to be able to get these years back. If you, you know, look at this chart of how much right. money you could have if you started yes. when you were 20. Right. And I have a hard time getting people to do that. 
Yeah. Well, I could not agree more. And I actually almost put a finance chapter in the defining decade because I actually think that's so important to educate people about. That's not, I'm a psychologist. So I thought, you know, I'm going to stick with my wheelhouse and, you know, let other people see the resonance with what I'm saying and what they're doing. But I do think uh, millennial, I'm a Gen X, and I think millennials have gotten better information and are more savvy because. Gen Xers, we just really didn't get it. We were the first generation to kind of get that sneaky debt, you know, not really understanding what those college credit cards were going to do to us or Mm -hmm. how the student loans. Now people are really being educated about that. But absolutely that, you know, you're right. And you know the data better than I do in terms of you don't have to save a lot in your 20s for it to be a lot later on, but that how aggressively you have to save in your 40s and beyond, if that's when you begin, it's a world of difference. And I think so many people would benefit from being educated about that. Are there other things you find particularly interesting about millennials' relationships with their money? I just think there are a lot more, you know, they kind of came of age, you know, right at the the you know, enormous economic downturn, which hit a lot of Gen Xers hard in terms of the housing market. You know, a lot of them had bought their houses high, and then they suffered the blows for that. But I think uh, millennials graduating into a recession, even though that was not a lot of ton of fun for them, you know, it's sort of like growing up in the depression. You you definitely don't take financial success for granted. And so I think they tend to be more conservative about, gee, is that grad degree really going to pay off for me? Should I take on this debt? Because they've heard the the stories and the stories are true in terms of how much debt you can easily rack up and then not be able to pay off. So I think you have um, a generation that's, you know, seen a lot of tough times in terms of getting jobs and being paid and, you know, having debt or barely escaping debt, and that they're serious about not living that way for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and I think it hurts them when it comes to what they're doing with their investments, right? So the the conservative mindset sometimes translates into, well, I'm just going to be safe and keep my money in the bank, even though I'm saving a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, right, right. I'm not investing it in stocks. We're going to talk a little more about that in a moment, but for now... I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments because we are working together to encourage all women to be in the front seat when it comes to their financial health. That's because women are in the driver's seat in so many other aspects of our lives, managing our careers, managing our families. And yet, when it comes to making decisions about money, too many women still delegate to someone else. One thing is really, really clear. When it comes to your investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, what your goals are, and having an annual financial checkup. And you can learn more at fidelity.com slash Front seat. And before we return with Meg, I want to talk about a friend of Meg's. We want to tell you about another show that you might enjoy. It's a new podcast from TED called Work Life with Adam Grant, organizational psychologist, best-selling author, Her Money Guest. That was episode 101. Adam Grant is an expert at helping us find motivation and meaning in our jobs. He's helped companies like Google, the NBA, the U.S. Army, improve life at work. Each week, 
Adam goes inside some of the most unconventional workplaces, like the Daily Show writer's room, a tomato paste factory with no bosses, and the International Space Station to explore the ideas that we can all use to make work more meaningful and more creative. And it is available now everywhere you get your podcasts. And we are happy to be back with Dr. Meg Jay, author of The Defining Decade. So you break that book up into three sections. There's the work section, the love section, and the brain and the body section. Let's start with work. What is your advice for the 20-somethings who are just overcome with indecision? I have two kids of my own, and my son is 23. My daughter is turning 21, which I cannot (laughs) believe. Indecision, I don't want to say indecision is a factor that they struggle with, but I I will say that decision-making is harder for them than I remember it being for me. Where do you start if you have a problem with this? And decision-making, are you talking about what kind of job I should take, what kind of partner I should choose? Is that what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. those those kind of things, or should I go to grad school, or should I not go to grad school? Should I break up with right. this guy, or should I stay with this guy? Should I buy or lease a car? Should I... I I mean, what should I order in a restaurant is sometimes more (laughs) troubling than it should be. Yeah, I really connected to the story in your book about how one of your clients felt like he was in the middle of the ocean and could swim in Mm -hmm. any direction. And I think we can use that for all of these moments. Exactly. I would interpret what your son and your daughter are saying, not as indecision, but as what I was referring to earlier, that 20 to 30 is the most uncertain decade of your life. And, you know, never again will you have a 10-year period of time where you could live anywhere, work anywhere, date anyone, order anything at a restaurant, you know, where you just feel that everything's up for grabs. I don't mean that, you know, life's a candy store and anything is truly possible, but you feel like there are a lot of ways to go. And actually the brain, the human brain does not love uncertainty. It actually interprets uncertainty as danger. Mm -hmm. So what you have are a lot of stressed out, you know, anxiety filled 20 somethings, not because they're weaklings compared to previous generations, but because their life is more uncertain than it was for previous generations. So the upside of that is they're less likely to, you know, marry the wrong person at 21 before they've really gotten a chance to know themselves. But the downside is, is that they have to make their way through all this gray area, which people do not enjoy. And that, you know, by their 30s and 40s, things will start to have become set. And you're not every day waking up thinking, I have no idea where I'll live next year, whether I can pay my bills, who I'll be with, what I'll do. It's that's not a great way to wake up in the morning. How can we better work through that anxiety and feel more confident about the decisions we do make? Uh, You talk about something identity capital. And I know Uh that's been really helpful for me. And I'd love for you to elaborate on it. Sure. So identity capital is sort of a flip on what we used to talk about, you know, that young adulthood or the 20s were to have an identity crisis. You know, you're supposed to sort of have a crisis. Who am I? Figure it out and go do it. But actually, 
that's really an old model when people might have been able to figure that out in a year or two and just go do it. And that's just not as possible now because of all the uncertainty I was mentioning before. So what I suggest that people do is think about making sure that you may not know what you want to do for the rest of your life or for the next 10 or 15 years, but that each year or each job, what you're doing is that be sure you're earning what's called identity capital. And so that's something that you all at this podcast can certainly understand. It's like, and make sure that you're investing in yourself and that you're taking your time and you're making good use of it and you're getting something back, whether that's, you know, working at a place with name recognition or getting certain skills or making contacts or getting a grad degree, or maybe you have, you know, a job where you're just getting through the day, but you're doing something at night that earns you identity capital. And if you invest your time in earning identity capital in your 20s, that as you move through your 20s, you'll have more clarity in terms of, hey, you know, where is my capital? What is feeling more certain for me? But you'll you'll also have more opportunities because you have capital to take into the to the workplace, into the marketplace of the workplace. I thought it was fascinating that you suggest that we have to be just as intentional with love as we do with work, and that many people aren't. So how do you apply this same filter to your love life? Yeah, so I actually find that to be, I mean, I think most millennials get it, you know, colleges, you know, kind of trains you for how to get out there and, you know, try to get your toe in the work world and make some things happen. But nothing really prepares us for, you know, the the dating world or getting out there and trying to find a partner. I mean, there's no, you can't go to grad school and, you know, come out with a partner like you can come out with a master's or an MBA or a PhD. And so, you know, I think a lot of people wish there was a syllabus and if they followed it, (laughs) they'd have an A plus partner. But that being said, I think a lot of people, and I would have to say, I probably fell into this category when I was in my 20s. When you're aware that you're not planning to settle down for quite some time, which I wasn't because I was getting going on grad school and work first, which is can be a very good plan. But when you're aware that you're not looking for a life partner, then that can lead people to say, well, that who they're dating doesn't matter. That, mm-hmm. well, I'm not going to marry this person. So who really cares whether they're good for me or not? However, having five or 10 years of some pretty cruddy relationship experiences isn't good for us down the line. It can make, you know, we're not learning anything about how to choose well when we're ready. We're not learning anything about what kind of person really fits for us or what it is we really want. And actually, you know, people can come out of their 20s pretty roughed up from some not so great relationship decisions. And and that doesn't put us in a great place for choosing well when the time comes. As we transition into the topic of your brain and your body, I mean, I was taken by what you said in the first segment when you talked about people in their 20s changing their personalities. Is that something that you do or that just happens? And if it's something that you can actively pursue, what's the best way to go about it? I think it's both. Your 20s tend to be the time when this will sound more extreme than it is, when mental health wobbles emerge. And by that, I mean normal developmental, hey, I'm feeling anxious or I'm pretty down. People are more likely to be depressed or anxious in their 20s than at any 
time before or after. And some people will say, look, the millennials are the most depressed generation ever. But actually, it's the it's the developmental time period that once they get through their 20s, they're likely to feel more settled and be less likely to have those struggles. So some of it's going to settle just with age, that it's just a tumultuous time in your brain and also in your life. That's a tough combination. But also, there are things that we can do you know, in our 20s to um, change a bit who we are. You know, an introvert may not start swinging from the chandeliers on a regular basis, but there are ways that we can learn to cope if we tend to be an anxious person, that we can, uh, you know, learn coping skills so that the anxiety is something we live with, not something that holds us back in terms of what we're doing, what kind of partner we're choosing, what kind of job we're going after. And so it's a time to get in there and learn some coping skills or some life skills that will help us kind of shore up those weak spots. One of those life skills is resilience. And that's something that you write extensively about in the new book, Supernormal. So tell us just a little bit about what we learn by going into your next chapter and how to build a little more of that. Yeah, so Supernormal, it's a very different book from The Defining Decade. But in other ways, it's it's a direct intersection is that Supernormal is about um, the millions of people in the book. There's about probably 30 of them, public figures and private citizens that I described, who grew up with lives that were a bit tough, whether that was they had an alcoholic parent or a sibling who was mentally ill or they were bullied or sexually abused. And they had what are really the most common adversities growing up. And what I was fascinated about in working with young adults, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, was that these were often the years when people found ways to say, I'm going to have a better life as an adult than I had as a kid. Like, I'm not going to let history repeat itself. And I wanted to write a book about that, not about, you know, sort of your, quote, normal developmental, how do I get a job, how do I find a partner stuff, but hey, how do I have a better life as an adult than the one that I saw when I was younger, which I think a lot of people are out there trying to figure out. They just don't talk about it all that openly. Well, it's a fascinating conversation to have. We are so grateful that you took some time to spend with us today. Kelly, do you have one last question? I do. Are you taking new clients? (laughs) Asking for a friend. (laughs) I get that question a lot, and I'm not. So I guess I'll just have to keep writing books so that people can, you know, it's really actually why I decided to start writing books was I felt like, you know, seeing people in, in therapy it's it's an inefficient business right there's only so many hours in the day and i just i just felt like these were conversations that really ought to be out in the open that so many people could benefit from you know even just from a book well my friend would appreciate that then thank you (laughs) thank you so much and we hope to talk to you again soon it was my pleasure so that was fun It was a lot of fun. Thank you for letting me sit in on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing her to our attention. You know, I was thinking about my 20s. -hmm. My mother always said that your 20s were the time when you were supposed to take risks, Mm -hmm. you know, that you could go out and... I think she told me that when I went to cooking school that <laughs> when, I, when I couldn't when I couldn't get a job and I decided to go to cooking school. She, yeah. I think she was like, "Well, your twenties are when you're supposed to take risks," mm-hmm. and I think that that's true. 
But I, I also appreciate this idea that if you don't take this opportunity to build a foundation more seriously mm-hmm. in love, in life, you're, you're missing something. It's about being more present and actively making the decisions you are instead of just waiting or just letting life pass you by. Or to her point about when we were talking about relationships, like being a little too experimental or not bringing enough intention into each relationship. And I'm all for having fun with dating. I have had fun with dating in my 20s. Still having fun dating in my 20s. (laughs) But, (laughs) But the book, after the book, I was like, I could also inadvertently be creating bad habits or not focusing enough on what I do want and what I don't want in these relationships because one of my goals, long-term goals, is to have a partner to spend the rest of my life with. Like, that's a goal. So what her book did was make me ask myself, what do I want in all of these facets and more? And that question, like we also talked about a lot, can bring about a lot of anxiety because uncertainty and the unknown and, like, me unable to answer these questions filled me with so much anxiety, still does. But it finally got me to really ask the questions and think about them in this, you know, digital age where we're all becoming so flighty with our thoughts, like to actually sit alone with myself. It's it's a, an important practice, but it's not an easy one. No, no, yeah. absolutely not. Well, let's sit alone with some other people's <laughs> yeah, thoughts. What do we segue. have from the mailbag? <laughs> yes. Um, our first question this week is from someone who would prefer to remain anonymous. She's wondering, how do you start the conversation when you've already been in a marriage for a long time that you'd like to have your own money or your own account? I've been married for decades, and we've always had only a joint fund. Not for any surreptitious reasons, just so I don't have to run all my purchases by someone and I can finally feel like I have my own financial power. So I have two suggestions. One is just to bite the bullet and do it and offer it up as I think we should both be able to do this. So you can blame it on anything you want. I bought an incredibly expensive pair of shoes today, and I just don't want to have to talk to you about the fact that I am spending my money on this. I I feel like it's a little silly, and yet I want to do it anyway. And I think you should have the opportunity to have some financial autonomy, too, and some financial freedom, too. And so I want a little mad money, and maybe I'll use it to buy you a birthday present at some (laughs) point. I think that's an okay to do it. The other thing you can do is feel free to just blame it on me. Say, I was listening to Jean Chatsky's podcast. She says, everybody needs to have some financial autonomy. Everybody needs to have a little bit of money that they can use to do with as they want without asking permission. And quote me on that. Bring it up. Tell them you want to take a flyer and see how it goes. If there's pushback, is there anything she should kind of rework or reevaluate about the next time she approaches it? (sighs) <sighs> if there's pushback, I'd ask why. Hmm. I, I'd just ask why. I mean, it may be for some very pedantic reasons. I mean, there may be pushback because, well, this is just going to make it so much harder to reconcile our accounts. We're not going to know where everything is. And particularly if you're dealing with somebody who's been controlling everything, this may feel very invasive. So I would say, why? And then I would say, so what can I do to make it possible? Love that. Be a part Um, of the solution. I mean, part of me, 
I got to say, you ask about the pushback, and part of my inclination is, well, just build a stash of cash in your underwear drawer. <laughs> um, but that would be encouraging the wrong behavior. Right. It would be. But um, if you want to ask us again after yeah, go ahead back, and have it. Let us yeah, know how it goes. We'd love to hear. And we'll do one more from Kathy. Regarding the credit bureau breaches, my boys are 20 and 22. One has a credit card trying to establish credit and the other does not. Should both freeze credit? How do they protect themselves? What both should do is pull their credit reports and see what exists already. The one who has a credit card should freeze their credit because they have a credit card. And so there is something there's something there to protect. The one who doesn't, as long as they don't have a credit report, they don't need to freeze anything. Once they establish credit, perhaps by getting a secured credit card, which you open by funding an account with a balance that becomes your credit limit, and then after you make on-time payments for generally 18 to 24 months, it turns into a regular credit card. Once that is open, go ahead and freeze the credit because you don't want anything messing with the account. But there may be nothing to freeze at this point. Right. And I asked this question a long time ago, but when people were talking about freezing credit, I thought they meant freezing the actual credit card account. It's credit file. It's credit report. Right. And you have to freeze with each of the three major credit bureaus individually. So that's TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. And You'll notice that some of them have started offering something called a credit lock instead of a credit freeze. A credit lock is better than a freeze in that it is sometimes free, whereas freezing your credit costs 5 to $10 every time you do it or don't do it, but it doesn't come with the same legal protections that a freeze does. So if you can afford the freeze and you're not unfreezing very often, and you shouldn't be because none of us should be applying for credit on a frequent basis, I would suggest freezing. Great. Thank you, Jean, and thank you, everyone, for your questions. Sure. And now it is time for a special Hayden Help segment. We're all in the family today. Hi, Hayden. Hi, Jean. So exciting. It is exciting. So tell me what you've got. So another all-in-the-family situation, Charles, our sound engineer, and his wife actually bought each other MoviePass subscriptions for Christmas. But she ended up with two accounts under her name instead of each of them having one. So that's kind of a pickle to be in. Um, So he spent two months trying to resolve it, no avail. Um, I took it on, reached out on Twitter, on the customer service chat in the app, and to the company's marketing email, never heard back. I've heard of a lot of people having problems with MoviePass's customer service lately. There's not that on top of it. So after more than a month, I finally, my last resort was tweeting at them from a verified account so that they'd actually take notice and saying, hey, you know, we're having a problem. What's the best way to resolve this? I got an email from MoviePass Escalations, which is like their secret, you know, really serious problem email Mm -hmm. address, ESC at moviepass.com. And they took on the issue. Finally, after that, they refunded one of the accounts, and after we asked again, they refunded the other $30 account. So basically, the main lesson here was persistence is really key, and you can't give up, and it never hurts to have a friend with a verified account. You know the other lesson here? There are people called escalators. Wow. Yeah, there was this Jeopardy champion. So before dinner, most nights, my husband and I will watch Jeopardy, and 
he's better at it than I am. But about a month ago, there was this champion who was on for a good five days, and that was his job. He was an escalator, and Alex Trebek asked him, what does that mean? And he said, I'm the one who gets the customer service problems when they get really bad. Wow. And so my lesson that I took away both from your scenario helping Charles figure out his movie pass conundrum and this Jeopardy thing is – Sometimes you don't have to ask for a supervisor. You can ask for an escalator, and that may be even better. Wow. That is crazy. I had no idea those existed. I know. I know. It's new lingo. Maybe. And, you know, honestly, if their email address is esc at moviepass.com, it stands to reason that maybe for some other companies it's esc or escalations or something at their domain name. It is. It is. So these are just—I keep hearing from people— how much they like this segment and how even though we're not necessarily solving their problems for them, they're using this as ammunition to just get themselves to pick up the phone and fight for what they want. And it it definitely helps whether you want to get a flight changed, whether you want money back on a cell phone plan, whether you're trying to get a refund for something, whether you just don't want to pay shipping for a purchase that has to go back and you don't feel like you should have to pay that shipping. There are people there to help you. You just have to ask. And sometimes you have to ask two and three times. It's so true. Like last week, I went to Colorado with a friend and we realized we got on two different flights and we were trying to get on the same one. I called. The first person said, sorry, it'd be $650 to change it with the fees and the fare change and everything. I hung up, called again an hour later. It was $75. Right. Because you got a friendlier person yep. on the line. <laughs> thank you, Hayden. Thanks, Jean. Always entertaining and important. And thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Meg Jay for the fantastic conversation. Thank you to Kelly for sitting in on that conversation and adding to the interview. If you like what you hear on Her Money, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with Kate Flanders, author of the new book, The Year of Less. We'll talk soon.